0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the last episode of the Drones for Good podcast for 2021. Andrew Crow is my name, who you know by now. Um, Today, we are moving into the last podcast of the the year, episode 15 or 16, I think it is. It's been a really great year talking to some really fantastic people, and we've got some pretty big plans for 2022, Um, moving into some new formats for the podcast, as well as some video stuff, as well as some other bits and pieces. So really keen to get stuck into 2022, but let's talk about today, and today... um, we are talking to a really cool company um, based here in Australia called Emerson. Um, really uh, excited to have the CEO and co-founder Stefan here today. Stefan, how are
1: you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here. Excited to be able to, to talk to you today.
0: Yeah. And uh, you're you're in uh, you're Brisbane as well, aren't you? Brisbane-based?
1: Yeah, based in, in Brisbane.
0: Been staying dry for the last week?
1: Uh, kind of, yeah. The weather's <laughs> not the best, but uh, yeah it interrupting flight testing a bit, but, yeah, we're we're doing okay.
0: I can imagine. Um, So you're the current CEO and co-founder of Emerson, and Emerson's obviously a really impressive Australian company that's been doing some um, outstanding international work, and we're going to get to that in uh, in a bit of a – in a few minutes. Um, I do want to – I've obviously gone back and done some LinkedIn stalking of you and and looked up the company and the website and everything else, and you've got a pretty impressive background yourself. So I'm really keen to understand – how did you end up here in Australia um, running in, or setting up and running a company like um, Emerson? What's what's the background of the story to
1: that? Um, yeah, it's, uh, well, how far, far back should I go? I suppose, yeah, so I grew up, grew up in South Africa, uh, did my undergrad in mechanical engineering, and, I mean, I've always been interested in in, in building things and, and getting things to work, and particularly more and more interested in, in using computers to control physical things like machines. Um and through my sort of even through my undergrad I started doing sort of work in in that space then went off to the usual sort of two year uh, stint to the UK and, and traveled around Europe and got more interested in in that while I was sort of working there as well and and actually wanted to get into um animatronics which is sort of uh, mm. sort of movie special effects yeah, cool. uh, before the before the days of CGI when you actually had <laughs> physical puppets that were that were controlled um so I looked at getting into that but realized there it wasn't something you can go study and uh, sort of get a degree and it was more sort of a, a trade type of thing and there wasn't any intelligence way i involved it was really about puppetry so um, decided that robotics was kind of the best the best fit for me um had a look around to see what robotics kind of programs there were uh, not much in south africa at the time so i looked at the us and there were quite a few options in um, other masters or phds in, in a number of universities so uh, I ended up going over to the states and um, did a PhD in robotics at at USC in, in California. Um, and as, when I joined the lab there, uh, they just started doing some some drone related work. Um, I mean, back then drones were not something you could just go buy off the shelf. Uh, this was sort of you know built from scratch based on a a model radio control helicopter, petrol powered helicopter, single rotor machine. Um, and that looked really fascinating for me because it kind of ticked all the boxes. I'd always been actually interested in flying things as well, building RC planes and stuff when I was younger, ticked the robotics box. Um, so yeah, joined, joined that team and, and and decided to do my PhD focusing on um, autonomous drones and adding sensors like cameras and radar and lidar to the drones to try and get them to perceive the world around them um, and be more intelligent, basically. Um wow. So that's, yeah, that's that gets me to sort of PhD. And then during that time, I actually uh, came out to Australia and ended two months at the CSRO uh, robotics group um, because we'd been doing some joint research and was invited out to come and, and join them for a bit. So I got to know the team out at, at Pullenvale and mm-hmm. saw the, again, the amazing work that they were doing. And they were also just starting to sort of move into the drone space as well. So then when I was finishing up my PhD at the end of, 2005 they were hiring to grow that team so i, I basically decided to come out and, and join them in the beginning of 2006 um moved out to australia and yeah i was there for 13 years at SARO, working on the same type of thing uh drones and, and drone autonomy in that robotics group um and yeah we did some really amazing things and you know worked on big projects with you know with, with industry um and my Co-founder Fred uh, Kendall joined the the same team a few years after me, so together we'd been working on, um, you know, these big projects uh, along the way, and and finally decided to the best way to commercialize some of the stuff we'd been working on was to. To co-found Emerson, but I'll I'll get into that in a bit more detail. Yeah, let's
0: get into that. So so you've gone uh, you've gone from South Africa to the UK, from the UK to the States, and now you've landed in Brisbane 15 years ago. Where's uh, Where's your favourite place in the world then? Out of all four, is South Africa still home really, or, or is now brizzy home?
1: Uh, I'd say Brisbane's home now, but I still love South Africa. I mean, the place I grew up in South Africa is a beautiful coastal town, kind of like a Byron Bay or Noosa. Oh, cool. So it's uh, it's always amazing to go back there. And obviously, I was a university in Cape Town. That's a, a beautiful part of the world as well. But no, Brisbane and Australia. Yeah, really, really awesome. Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, nice. No, awesome. Uh, I think that's a really cool story, you know, traveling around the world and ending up you know, in Brisbane and, and setting up, you know, what is a... Uh, I'd say an internationally leading company in, in some of this stuff. And, and before we get into um, Emerson in particular, you know, I think I think people just don't understand just how advanced um, CSIRO is here in Australia and how, how much great work they're doing. Where do you see them kind of compare on the world scale? You know, around some of that research and development for autonomous systems.
1: Oh yeah, definitely um, one of the, the leaders, especially in, in field robotics. So you know, doing doing robotics in a lab or in a sort of controlled environment is is one thing. Um, but field robotics <clears throat> is certainly different, and when you're out in, in the real, unstructured world, um, it's a it's a lot more challenging problem. And the the group are very well known for successes in in field robotics, um, and that that is definitely the case. Um, and obviously, you know, you know, something like the the DARPA challenge, just mm-hmm. uh, the sub T challenge, just shows how how strong the group is on on that global stage.
0: Yeah, and really keen to talk about that too because I know that Emerson was involved and uh, my listeners would have heard um, Dr. Lavinda um, Kodaji on, on last week actually, uh, or the week before, and we had had a really good chat. But let's talk about Emerson now. So you're at CSIRO, you saw the ability or, or the opportunity to commercialise. Um, you and Farid you know, established Emerson at that point. What was the problem that you were trying to solve? What, what is the point of Emerson?
1: Um, yeah, so what we'd been working on is, like I said, drone autonomy, so adding various sensors and compute power to drones to make them more um, autonomous and, and intelligent. In parallel, there was another group um, who had been working on navigation for ground robots, and one of the challenges there was uh, navigating indoors and outdoors, so you're mm. sort of going indoors in and out of GPS. Um, so what they ended up developing was a uh, LIDAR-based 3D SLAM solution, which can be used for generating a map but also estimating your position as, you, as you're as traveling through that that map. Um and that's kind of for for drones that was uh sort of a, a key need as well if you're flying a drone in an environment where there's no GPS. Um and also obviously drones have been used more and more to, to generate maps uh using photogrammetry or LIDAR, but typically in sort of fairly benign environments where there's you've got GPS, there's no you assume there are no obstacles. Um But for us, we were focusing on trying to solve the hard problems like that, flying a drone where there's no GPS and it's a cluttered sort of uh, obstacle-filled environment. So it kind of made sense for us to take those two bits of research and put them together. So they've got the the drone autonomy side and then the 3D SLAM technology put them together. Um, And that's where the idea for HoverMap came from. And so HoverMap's our, our payload, which does autonomy and mapping. But the idea is to bring those two technologies together in a, um, a plug-and-play modular payload that you can put on the drone or take it off the drone. Um, and when it's on the drone, it provides those two things. So LIDAR mapping and autonomy, including SLAM, which basically gives us the est- state estimate for the drone, so position, velocity, orientation, without using GPS, and that's, that means we can you know, do autonomy where there's, uh, where there's no GPS on the drone. Um, Yeah, so that was kind of the idea for map. That's where it came from. And obviously, we saw a lot of uh, potential and and use cases across many verticals. Um, And the the problem we were solving in those verticals was that um, collection of data in challenging GPS-denied environments where you didn't want to send people or it was too dangerous to send people. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously, that led to underground mining. Um, It didn't take long before we got some interest from... From mining companies and they explained the challenges that they were having in some areas underground particularly flying into stopes um so we, we sort of uh gave that a go and realized it was a very very strong um uh, application for gps denied drone and mapping flight
0: yeah and it's that gps denied environment that's, that's so important you know it's it's so easy to build fly around the field you know in the middle of nowhere um, where you've got good gps um, it's much more difficult once you put yourself underground. And, and so, what are the you know my, mining is obviously vertical. That my mind went to immediately: large, big, you know, um, not necessarily open cut, but, but closed mines. What what information are they gathering then? Why why do they need that in, you know, that, that inside mapping of mines? It's
1: it's typically used as a survey tool, um, sometimes as a um, as an inspection tool. Say the uh, the the most common use is mapping of stopes, and a, and a stope is a large void which is formed underground after blasting. So that they blast the rock and then they they remove it with sort of remotely operated um, loaders and what's left is a void. And that void needs to be scanned to make sure that the blast has gone according to plan because if there's been any overbreak, they might've broken away. You know, um, they want to extract the good stuff and leave the poor quality <laughs> material behind. So they need to do a, a reconciliation. So by scanning it, they can tell if if they've removed sort of um, low quality material which dilutes the ore or they might have left some of the sort of high quality grade behind so they need to scan it and previously they were doing that um, using a laser scan mounted to a, a long pole or boom and the surveyor would have to go to the edge of this fairly um, uh, hazardous area and mm. stick this pole into the into the void to scan it um, so that would take them quite a long time to do um, obviously the surveyor had to be in that, that area which is not ideal and then, because this, they are only scanning from one point of view. There was a lot of missing data or sort of shadowing in the data, so they weren't getting a, a complete picture. Um, so, with the benefits of doing that with a with a drone or system like HoverMap, is that the system can be launched from a safe location um, because it flies around inside that void. Um, you know, with with HoverMap, you're getting a full spherical field of view, so everything is captured in a lot of detail. Um, so they get new insights that they just couldn't get before, and obviously doing that safely and, and efficiently. So, yeah, a lot of benefits compared to the the, the previous uh, way of doing things. The
0: traditional methods, yeah, yeah. You know, even even if you look at it from a um, from a safety perspective, it's just uncool to be putting people in those positions that we just don't need to be. Um, notwithstanding the fact that I'm sure HoverMap and and your systems are going to give them far more fidelity than they would have got, you know, from a from a surveyor putting a pole over the edge. Um, is that what is that what was being seen?
1: Yeah, I mean, for example, that you know, previously they were f- focused on doing, uh, looking at the shape of that that stope and comparing to design, calculating the volume from that. Um, but now, with the sort of um, the level of detail they're getting from the hover map scans, they can do additional things like look for geotechnical structures, and that helps them to better understand the ground conditions and um, how those those structures interact with a particular uh, drill and blast pattern, and that helps them to optimize the. The drilling and blasting for the, the sort of the next uh, bit of blasting they do, and that all leads to um, reduced overbreak and dilution. So it really adds up to efficiencies across that sort of uh, uh, sort of mine to, to mill uh, workflow, um, which helps them to yeah, obviously. Uh, generate more profit at the end of the day. So it's there's a lot of benefits. So nice. <laughs> um, Yeah, and, and that's in the kind of day-to-day, everyday operations. And I think what's interesting to see is, you know, when when things are not going well, that's when the value of, of this kind of thing really spikes because if there's an area that that's causing them to stop production, I mean, that's very expensive for a mine if they have to hold production. Mm. So being able to get in um, very quickly and, and capture data and, and help them to resume production, I mean, that's where, you know, the system becomes very, very valuable.
0: Yeah, yeah. I hadn't actually thought of that. You know, that the fact that you guys can get it done a lot quicker, which is going to mean, you know, not not that they're making more money, but they're certainly saving money by by not having mining mines closed down for longer periods of time. Is there yeah. other um, is there other markets that, that you guys are in? Where, where else is Hoffmat being used? And um, we will talk about the, the DARPA sub T challenge because it's one of the coolest things I'd, I'd ever heard about. But is there other um, other markets for this type of uh, this type of technology as well?
1: Yes, certainly. Uh, many markets or applications uh, that have the same challenge of, of needing to capture um, data, which is hard to access, and and doing that also on, on a regular basis. Because I mean, one of the, the, the key sort of use cases is is trying to do assets integrity management, um, and that usually involves capturing data about an asset, so that it could be a combination of scanning or taking photos or having sort of IoT sensors, which are monitoring that. Um, storing that data and managing it and aligning it and then using that data to derive insights and make decisions and then sort of make a change in the world to to sort of uh close the loop and um you know improve a a process or a cycle and often that that sort of cycle is quite manual because they're manual steps along Mm. the way um particularly in the data capture aspect um you know still relying on on humans to go into some fairly dangerous places to capture data so um by helping that first step of data capture across many industries, we can help sort of speed things up. But then that also has knock on effects, because if you if you start step one with very good data and could do that in an efficient routine way, then you can uh, have sort of better outcomes around the rest of that cycle and reduce unplanned downtime. So, yeah, I mean, other examples are in the AEC space um, around construction, architecture yep. and engineering. Um, Big one is sort of for example uh, bridge inspections getting underneath the deck of a bridge mm. um, to inspect it so i mean hover map can can help generate the 3d point cloud but for an asset inspection the other use is basically just to, to automate the drone flight and keep it stable where there's no gps so that the operator can spend the time with the high sort of high-end inspection camera and, and capture very good inspection images of you know a structure like the bridge and then the same for oil and gas, you know, underneath the, the deck of a of an oil and gas platform around complex um complex structures. Uh so yeah, that's some of the other sort of use cases that, that hover maps being used.
0: Yeah, and, and as I said before, I guess that the GPS drive environment, everyone's so worried about it, all of a sudden GPS is not a problem <laughs> for you guys, the yeah. way you operate. So it makes it makes it pretty attractive. It's yeah. funny, I was thinking back to, you know, just anything that's underground. And um, as a young fellow, we used to go caving a lot as as a family and um, you know, for recreation. It would have been cool to have something like HoverMap, map, you know, to be able to go in and actually map some of these caves in high fidelity. Yeah. Is is the technology at a cost price point yet where you know you could you could use this for some of these recreational type things or is it still at a price point where it would need to be you know commercial operation to to um to really afford it
1: yeah probably still more in the commercial space it's not a consumer it's not a consumer product um, having said those i mean yeah, what you can do with an iphone these days on a small scale <laughs> is, is pretty amazing you know with LIDO built-in and photogrammetry so for a smaller scale things, there are alternatives. Um, mm. But obviously, if you want to do something like you know really automating the flight of a drone and capturing you know, that sort of high quality lidar point cloud, it's still a bit more on the on the commercial side of things. I want, and one one of the constraints there is you know the the lidar that we use is um, obviously still relatively large and, and expensive. It's mm. not the size of a, a chip on, a, on an iPhone yet. Um, and that's to get the kind of range that we need and, and field the view that we need. Um, but I mean, no doubt these things will come down in price um, and it will become yeah ubiquitous. I mean, our, our vision of the, the future is that, you know, almost every drone or other robot has got these kind of compatible sensors built in. And I mean, what our core IP is really is in the software that uses those sensors to do the autonomy and mapping, um, you know, we're not, we're not necessarily having to build hardware like HoverMap going forward if, uh, if everything sort of has the, the sensing capability and the compute capability built into the platform, um, then it's more about the, the autonomy software.
0: And, and as things get smaller and things get, you know, in, uh, less expensive and stuff, it's going to make a massive difference. So I'm, I'm sure, you know, even from when you came out to Australia in 2006 to now, 15 years, um, the miniaturization of, of technologies is just, it's unbelievable what you can put on a chip nowadays.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it's driven by consumer market. I mean, I think mm. smartphones have, have driven a lot of that, miniaturizing everything and reducing the, the costs.
0: Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about what, what I've wanted to talk about and I've purposely left it till towards the end. So we recently had um, Dr. Vindu Kodajay from CSIRO Data61 on the podcast, spoke about the DARPA Sub-T Challenge. Um, unbelievable result. I'm not going to give it all away because I want the listeners to go back and listen to that CSIRO um, Data61 mm-hmm. podcast as well. But, um, Stefan, for those that don't know, what is the Sub-T Challenge? What does it involve and what was your involvement in that?
1: Um, so, yeah, this DARPA subterranean challenge is the latest uh, or one of the latest um, challenges set out by DARPA. And DARPA, DARPA is the US Defense Research Agency. I mean, they're famous for uh, instigating or starting the, the internet, for example. I mean, that was mm. a DARPA project back in the day. Um, and then they've set out a number of really big, um, grand challenges to, to challenge industry, just try and kind of um, uh, accelerate. You know, growth in, in certain areas so back in around 2004 they had a, a challenge around autonomous driving um and the first challenge there was to to drive an, a car autonomously through part of the, the desert in in uh in in nevada and yeah the first year nobody even got out this the, the sort of the holding pen pretty much i think um <laughs> uh and they kept running it you know a few years in a row and i think by the second or third year almost mo- you know most of the com um participants had completed the very really challenging um, course and that went on to do a sort of autonomous driving in, in urban environments <clears throat> and then there was another round one around um, autonomous sort of humanoid type robots in in industrial environments and the driving one is kind of um, what led to most modern autonomous driving capabilities if you look at any mm. large sort of uh, car manufacturer or research or sort of commercial group that's doing autonomous driving, most of them have their roots back in successes in the in the DARPA um, challenges. Um, so, yeah, then to sort of roll forward to when it was a three or four years ago from, from now, they announced a new one around autonomous exploration and mapping of GPS subterranean environments. Um, and at the time, we'd already been you know working in that space and, and demonstrated autonomous flight in underground mines and we're getting traction in mining. Um, we were still part of CSRO at the time, but it, it seemed like a, a natural fit to what we were doing and what our vision was going to be um, for Emerson as we spun out and obviously aligned with what um, Data61 had been doing. So we um, we applied uh, for the challenge and also, the, importantly, the, the way they had set out the challenge. Um, it was, I suppose, envisioned in a way that it would never be possible for a single robot or type of robot to complete the challenge, um, in terms of the size of the area that needed to be explored and the types of things, that, you know, terrain that need to be um, explored, you could never do it just with a drone or just with a ground robot. So they really were encouraging teams to work together, um, and that's why for us it made sense to, to team up with with Data Sixty One and also with with Georgia Tech in the U.S. to do a, a combined effort where we would focus on the on the drone side of things. Siro Data 61 would focus on um, the SLAM capability and ground robots. And then Georgia Tech were bringing sort of the robot coordination component together. Um, so, yeah, we've we, we applied and, and we're successful. And I think we we're one of uh, seven or eight teams that successfully made it into the sort of a funded round. So, we we're actually mm. uh, funded by DARPA to participate. Um, and uh, i'm sure you know if people go and listen to the vendors talk they'll hear the sort of the the series of events that went over the last three years of sort of um intermediate stages of, of competing and we made it through all of that and made it to the final um and yeah the final was a, a real nail-biter i couldn't be there in person unfortunately <laughs> but i was i was watching live and and cheering the team on from from here and yeah no, it was uh, incredible so i don't know if you want me to yeah, I'll Spoiler let you. Spoil, why uh... why
0: don't you. You tell our, you tell our listeners how well um, how well the team did.
1: Um, yeah, so I mean, the the final course um, was a combination of three types of environments. So through the year, they had, had an urban environment where sort of drones flying in indoor sort of subway stations and were kind of man made environments. Then they had mm. one which was a, um, a man made tunnel environment, like an underground mine environment. So we participated in that and, and done well. And then there was also meant to be one for a kind of a cave environment, and that was um, canceled because of uh, COVID, but we did sort of our own independent testing. And this final event was a combination of all three. sets. So they actually built an environment that included all those different types of uh, scenes. And um, I should have gone going back a bit. The way you score points is by finding things in the environment and reporting what they are and where they're located. In real time to a sort of an automated judging system and then you get scored if you correctly identify the thing and where it is um, and that's all got to be done pretty much autonomously because there's only one operator or person that's controlling or supervising that whole team of robots so we had mm. you know up to five six robots at one time in the environment um and yeah so we use cameras to to to, to find things um and then the the mapping and sort of slam capability helps us to figure out where they are in the environment. So yeah, getting getting back to it um in, in the in the final <laughs> event we ended up uh coming tie with um this, the this another team so we ended up both scoring 23 points um which is incredible. I mean, leading up to this, you know, we we were uh, would be ecstatic even just to get in the top 5 in the final. I mean, that's a huge mm. deal uh, considering who we were up against Um, but yeah ended up scoring 23 points and because where there was a a a tie they had to sort of uh, use a tiebreaker and in the rules the tiebreaker was around who whichever team scored the final point soonest Mm. and um, because the the other team had scored their final point I think around 30 seconds earlier than we did they took first we took second Um, so a little bit disappointing but still extremely (laughs) excited and happy to, to have made it um, to, into the final and, and, and basically come almost tie first with with another team and, and beat out um, you know very capable teams from CMU and MIT and other to uh leading organizations around the world
0: yeah, I think it's an outstanding um, it's an outstanding result. And if I knew how to do some sort of clapping voiceover, I'd um, I'd do it for sure. But um, you know, given given a couple of things, I think at play here, one, it's a, it's a worldwide challenge that was being delivered. You know, during COVID, towards the end of sort of the COVID pandemic, the ability for us to still get a team together. And, and one of the most important parts that that I think is worth drawing out is the the collaboration that occurred between Emerson and data sixty one, and I think BAI, BAI five based here in Brizzy as well provided some of the the robots and stuff too. Yep. Just that collaboration piece, I think, was outstanding. How did you how did you find that sort of working together? You know, understanding what your shortfalls are, what other people's strengths are. How did you find that whole sort of team environment?
1: Yeah, I mean, for us, it was this was sort of natural continuation of the work we've been doing with the, um, the you know the group at, at CSRO, mm. and we were very fortunate that we had that close working relationship with them, um, and that kept going. You know, after we we spun we spun out, we kept kept that going because of DARPA and, and other things. And, you know, the nature of the challenge meant that we, you know, like I said, you had to use uh ground robots and drones together. Um, so it was a really, uh, fruitful sort of working relationship. And then because we both located in Brisbane and for a lot mm. of the time we were still on Sira property. So, you know, we're out there every day. <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> yeah. Just <laughs> testing with, uh, with the Sira team and, and, you know, that, that continued. Um, and also because of the, the slam, Sort of technology that we're using in HoverMap, which is obviously developed at SARA as well, is still being used on the, the, the SARA ground robots too, and being developed there. So they just integrated seamlessly, and sort of they could share. Um, they were all sharing their map information in real time, and actually doing joint mapping. And that's because of the SARA Wildcat Slam technology. Um, and yeah, just sort of uh, kudos to, to SARA for for fielding mm-hmm. such a an amazing ready to operate system um if, if you consider the fact that eventually it was actually um, operated by relatively few uh team members because it was difficult to to travel so only i think two people from cyro went over with our group um and it, you know the system the entire system was very easy to set up and, and run and i think the the darpa staff were apparently were just amazed by how efficient that team was other teams would would because you have sort of a staging area and before your, your your one hour run, you have, I think, half an hour to get set up and ready. And other teams would be running around like crazy, you know, at, at the last minute trying to get everything to work. And apparently our team would be you know, sort of casually walk in, set things up. <laughs> and and then, you know, after five minutes, they'd be sort of hanging around and waiting to go. Um, so, and again, that's because of the close working relationship between us and Sarah and, and how sort of well Sort of designed and then set up the the system was.
0: And I think from memory, um, Navinda was saying that uh, yeah, each team gets about an hour run. Um, so out of a whole hour worth of time, you know, you guys came second by twenty three seconds or thirty seconds or whatever it was. So it's um yeah, it's pretty close. You might as well call it equal first instead and just split the um split the prize money. Um, Stefan, before we finish up, I, I always like asking about the future. So, so where where are you guys going? What's what's next for Emerson? What's next for the industry? Do you think? Um, you know, I'm sure you've got yourself a five year strategic plan that you can't really talk about because you've got to keep it quiet. But where are you guys going into the future?
1: Um, we're we're heading. I mean, towards our our vision. So our vision is is being world leaders in autonomous digitalization of these challenging, hard to reach, uh, inaccessible areas. Um, on earth and potentially one day beyond. Um, So that, I mean, that digitalization for us is around data capture and data analysis. Um, At the end of the day, uh, our customers don't just want um, a raw point cloud. They want to use that to derive insights and and help them to make decisions. So that's for us sort of the next step in the value chain that we're working into as as well, um, actually processing the data and, and doing things like calculating that volume or if it's in a mining environment, using machine learning to, to find rock bolts and use that to generate an audit report for ground support. Um, in the asset inspection space, it's, you know, if you're capturing imagery and LIDAR is analyzing that data and then making it, you know, making decisions or helping customers to make decisions on it. So that that's our future. Um, and so what that involves is, is data capture through drones, but also other robotic systems. So, you know, working with um, things like the Boston Dynamics uh, Spot Dog have um, maps integrated on there for now just as a, as a passive map mapping payload but now we're adding autom- autonomy to that as well um, so you know in, in the future something like a mine site or an oil and gas facility um, or even something civil like you know a bridge or a rail network will have autonomous systems that are designed into that environment and always um, switched on ready to go operating 24-7 um, going around collecting data streaming that all back to um, you know, a central location where that data has been managed, organized, and then analytics is, is run on that data seamlessly in real time. And at the end of the day, you know, humans will be sort of advising and supervising and and helping to um, to make high-level decisions based on all that autonomous data capture and basically keeping a, a living digital twin always up to date um, with the latest information and then using robot systems to actually go and uh, make a change in the world. Um, to actually to do things in that environment too, so that that's our view of the of the of the yeah, future. Cool. That's our vision, and you know we want to be a key player in that space and be um, a key enabler. So without without us, it would be very hard to to have that um, you know that capability.
0: Mm. I think it's fantastic, and um, just that the foresight you guys have got, and obviously the the intellect that, that's within Emerson is outstanding, and the work you guys are doing across other areas with with data 61 is is great where um last question for the day where can people go to get some more information about about what you guys are doing or or just more more info about emerson um, broadly
1: probably best to start on our website um uh emerson.com uh so we've got a great sort of resources section there with with case studies and videos and 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 news stories um also, fairly active uh, on on LinkedIn, um, either through the you know the company's page or you know, our, you know, staff members get to post things as well. Um, and then, yeah, we've got a bunch of webinars as well, which are, you know, have been uh, obviously been live, but they're recorded, so that's uh, a good place to, to to start and catch up. Or just yeah, reach out to to one of us, reach out to me, um, or or anybody in the in the team, info at Emerson.io or staff at Emerson.io. Um, happy to to take questions, and I mean we we're, we're always looking for new applications, and really passionate about understanding the problems that are out there that our customers are or potential customers are having, so we can work with them to solve uh, those problems. So if, you know, if, even if you're not sure if if what we can have or what we can do can help, um, you know, it's, start with a conversation and figure out if what, what the problem is and what the solutions we might have that can help.
0: Fantastic. Stefan, um, thanks for what you guys are doing. It's it's so awesome to see Australian companies doing so well, um, You know, in, international leaders in, in what, what you guys are doing, which is uh, which is outstanding. And the best part is it's, it's Australian-owned and it's, it's here in the country and hopefully it stays here in the country too. Um, ladies and gents, that, that's it. That's us for the year. We're done. Um, what are we in? 2021 is, is finished. I'm having a break for uh, for four or six weeks or so. We'll be back in 2022 with the podcast. Um, to give you a little insight, we're doing a UK tour to kick off 2022. We're going across four or five companies based in the UK um, and some of the work they're doing over in uh, over over that, that part of the world. Um, so the first five or six episodes will be um, UK-based organisations before we come back and we hit back on our Australian tour. Um, Stefan, thanks very much. This will go out next Monday, which is uh, I think around the, the 13th or 12th or something. Um, hopefully, you guys have a great Christmas as well and, uh, and ready to go for 2022.
1: Yeah, thanks so much, Andrew. I hope you have a great break too. I certainly will. And I'm excited for 2022. Got some some big things coming up. So yeah, watch the space.
0: Outstanding. Thanks,
1: mate. Cheers.